May the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. I encourage you to look in the book of Revelation, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, and there you will find our sermon text for the evening. It's also printed in our worship order. Last week we began a mini-series on the book of Revelation, and remember that we went to visit the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos, where he had taken a one-way vacation, courtesy of the Roman Empire. There he found himself in exile, an old man worshiping on the Lord's Day. And it was in that hour of worship, on that day of worship, that he was in the Spirit. And the Lord Jesus Christ revealed himself to John. And John was able to see his old friend Jesus once again. No longer just the Word made flesh, but the Word made flesh and then glorified and John had this majestic vision of who Jesus is. And it's that vision of Jesus that will sustain John and sustain us as we make our way through the book of Revelation. We're going to look at snapshots of the Lamb of God in this magnificent book. And today we jump to chapter 4 where we see another vision given to John by the Lord Jesus Christ. Our sermon text for this evening is Revelation 4, 1 through 11. If you are willing and able, I invite you to please stand for the reading of God's holy word. The word of God reads, after this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and round the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Round the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And round the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox the third living creature with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around with and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed 
and they were created. And that is the word of the Lord. And God add his blessings to the reading, the hearing, and the preaching of his word in all the church says. You may be seated. As I mentioned, John was a prisoner on the Isle of Patmos, which is just off the coast of Asia Minor. The seven churches who were to receive the letter of this vision were located in Asia Minor. Think of the Isle of Patmos sort of like the Alcatraz of the Roman Empire. There's no way off. You're isolated. It's dangerous to depart the island and to swim the treacherous seas back to Asia Minor, if you so dare. Besides that, John is an old man. There's no way he's going to venture and escape. From his point of view, there is no one coming from the mainland to visit him. There is no way off of the island. Except on this day, he is in fact taken away from the island. In the spirit, though not in the body. The sovereign and majestic Lord Jesus Christ who was the voice who had spoken to him, who had revealed himself to John in the first vision came. And remember, in that vision, Jesus revealed himself to John, not simply in this cosmic magnificence, but he revealed himself to John in ways that John would understand. Jesus comes to him as the prophet who proclaims God's word to him. He comes to him as the priest who stands between heaven and earth. He comes to him as the king who reigns over all. And it is that voice that speaks to John and calls to John and comforts John. It is that voice that John hears in the spirit on the Lord's day. A voice that says to him, come up and I will show you and tell you what must soon take place. John is about to experience the ultimate in show and tell. Jesus is going to show John things that are in the universe next door. And he tells John to write it down so that John may tell about it to others. And so he's not receiving some top secret vision, but a vision that he is to write down and share with the church universal throughout the world. You notice in this story that John looks and behold, there is a door standing open in heaven. This is his way of escape. This is his way out. Only God could devise such an escape hatch. He sees a door standing open in heaven. But how in the world will John ever reach that door? How could an old man make his way up through that door? Well, he does so in the power of the Spirit. He does so by the power of the word of God, for it is Christ himself who says, come up here, come up and see what must soon take place. Come through this door. And so the spirit blows John and lifts him up and he goes further up and further in to the presence of God. And there he finds himself at the center of life and the universe and everything. There was a door in the sky. A door is a passageway to another place. It connects one space to another. A door is a connective link through which we travel, through which we pass as we move from one realm to the next. And in this story, the door is the thing that brings John from this world, the old world, the world of first things to 
the new world, the world of second things and last things. C.S. Lewis used the image of the door throughout his Narnia series. Those of you who have read the Chronicles of Narnia series will note that a door appears in almost every book of that series. It's a door in a wardrobe that allows children to get from one realm to Narnia. It's a door that Aslan frames in an open field that allow people to travel from Narnia back to other worlds. Aslan established the door as a portal that would bring people from one world to another. In the book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Aslan opens a door in the sky. And Lewis writes that all in one moment there was a rending of the blue wall like a curtain being torn and a terrible white light from beyond the sky and the feel of Aslan's mane and a lion's kiss on the foreheads and then the back bedroom in Aunt Alberta's home in Cambridge. They were transported from Narnia back to the world of first things. John saw a door in the sky, an open door in heaven. And this is not an ordinary door, but it is the extraordinary door that we've been reading about in John's writings. Before his crucifixion, resurrection and ascension, Jesus claimed to be the door by which if anyone enters, he shall be saved. He also claimed to be the way to the Father, the way that brings you through the door that leads you to the Father. A door which no one may enter in the power of the flesh, but only in the power of the Spirit. And Jesus had told John and his disciples, remember, that he was going to prepare a place for them. He would come back and take them and bring them to be with him where he is. And so now John after waiting patiently for many, many years, experiences the fulfillment of the promises of Jesus. For not only has Jesus come back to him, but now Jesus has called him to come and be with him beyond the veil, through the door, to come into the universe next door, to see what's happening in ultimate reality. And so by the power of the Spirit, John experiences the glorious truth of Jesus. And he discovers once again that Jesus is the promise maker and the promise keeper. And so it is on the Lord's day that John is in the Spirit and he sees a vision. But what does he see? He sees a vision of the universe next door. And as he passes through this door, who knows what was in his mind? Who knows what he expected? Who knows what you would have expected? But as he passes through this door, he sees a glorious worship service. With worshipers centered on the Lord God Almighty, who is seated on a throne. I want to suggest to you that what we are doing today, what we are doing now, even in this moment, what we are doing in the spirit on the Lord's day and what we do every Lord's day is but a shadow of things to come. It is a shadow of what is happening even now in the universe next door where there is the reality. We are but a shadow of the things to come. 
what we do one day a week now for one or two hours a week now, we shall do every day then. And so I got news for you. Take it if it's good or bad. It's up to you. But if you don't like what we're doing now, if you don't like worshiping here in the old world, you're going to hate the new world. You're going to hate life in the new heavens and new earth. Many people, even some professing Christians, treat the worship of the Lord God Almighty as if it were an option instead of an obligation. They treat it as a marginal part of life instead of as the central aspect of their life. Others treat the worship of God as an individual matter rather than as a communal matter. They want to make it all about me and Jesus instead of about the triune God and his people. Yet what does this vision show us and what does it tell us? It tells us that worship is the central activity at the center of all reality. If you could, if you could take a, a glimpse, if you could see beyond the veil, if you could see through the door open in heaven, even now, what would you see? Well, you would see what John saw. All of heaven and earth, all creatures of our God and King, Centered around the throne, praising his name, declaring his glories, worshiping the true and living God. This vision teaches us, it shows us that the Lord God Almighty is the gravitational center of all of life, of all of history, of all of our experience. All things are drawn to him and they are for him and they are centered around him. In his book, Reversed Thunder, Eugene Peterson explains Christians worship with a worship with a conviction that they are in the presence of God. Worship is an act of attention to the living God who rules and speaks and reveals and creates and redeems. He orders and blesses outsiders observing these acts of worship see nothing like that. They see a few people singing unpopular songs, sometimes off key, someone reading from an old book and making remarks that may or may not interest the listeners, and then eating and drinking small portions of bread and wine that are supposed to give nourishment to their eternal souls the same way that beef and potatoes sustain their mortal flesh. Who is right? Well, those of us who worship the true and living God in spirit and truth believe that we are right. In worship, God gathers his people to himself as the center. Now, I don't have to tell you this, but I will anyway. It's not for information. It's just to connect, to tell you something you already know, and then you'll feel like you're really engaged in the sermon. Okay. I'm joking about that part, but I do want us to I do want to say something that you probably already know that many people in our world fail to grasp the meaning and purpose of worship. They think it's all about them. It's about how worship makes them feel. But true worship is always and only about God, not about how well it makes God feel, but about how accurately it depicts and declares who he is and what he has done. The one who is seated on the throne is indescribable. 
And yet, through our feeble efforts, we try to describe Him. We try to declare His praises. We are grasping, reaching for the stars, struggling with all of our might to put into words what is in our hearts, struggling with all of our might to convey the gratitude and the praise that has welled up within us. And you know that apart from the Spirit, we would fall so short. Apart from the work of Christ, our praise and worship would come nowhere near the worthiness of God. In this vision, we get a glimpse of who God is. And John is writing what he sees, and yet he can't put into words what he sees. And so he uses a lot of words like it seems like and it appeared like and it looked like because he can't quite put it all into language what he's seeing. And so he describes God in this way. He's shown like a stained glass window with all of the radiance and brilliance of light refracting through precious translucent stones of red, orange and green. And there is a sign of the covenant that encircles him, encircles his throne. His warrior bow is still hung in the sky. His promise to all creation remains unbroken. I want to suggest to you, if you're the the type that likes to use your imagination, the next time a storm passes and you see a rainbow, you might think, I just caught a glimpse of the universe next door. Because in a way you have. God has made promises and set his bow in the sky. Everything in this vision is happening around the one who is seated on the throne. It is happening around him and before his face. And what do you see happening here? Everyone is fixated on the one who is seated on the throne. You have here a vision of the ideal presbytery meeting. All the presbyters who rule the church of Jesus Christ are gathered before the Lord God Almighty. All of the elders are there ruling over the church, and yet they are not lording it over God's people. They are not proud of themselves for their high position. As you will see, they in fact will fall on their faces in humility before this majestic and glorious and sovereign God. They are gathered before the Lord God Almighty. Why? So that they may lead the people of God in the worship and praise of God. And they're not alone in this. In the midst of this great scene, there is an awful and beautiful storm that is raging around the throne. And out of that storm, the Spirit of God is speaking to all of creation, to God's creatures, speaking to God's church. All of this is reminiscent of stories from the Old Testament. Think of those stories where God descended upon the mountain. And there was thunder and fire and billows of smoke and flashes of lightning. The elders of God ventured up with Moses on the mountain to eat in the presence of God. And God spoke to his people out of that storm. It reminds us of a scene where a prophet goes up into a cave. He thinks he is the only one. He's a part of a very small church, a church of one, he thinks. I'm all alone out here. God has left me. God has abandoned me. 
And it was in that moment that God appears to him outside of a cave, first in a windstorm and then an earthquake and then a firestorm, lightning flashes, and then a gentle whisper. It was God who appeared to his servant Job and spoke to him out of the the storm when Job was saying, I want to know why things aren't right with my life. Why have you done this to me? Why have you left me in this state? Come down here and let's have a conversation about this. And God spoke out of the storm and said, brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. Reminds us of the storm that Isaiah saw. When he drew near to God in the temple on the Lord's day. And he was caught up in the spirit and in a vision of angelic beings swirling about him. And he caught a glimpse of the train of God's garment as it passed by. And he found himself unhinged and ruined by that vision. All of those Old Testament brothers saw the same thing. God in a storm veiled behind clouds and fire and billows of smoke. And it is only through Jesus Christ that our brother John is carried beyond that to the other side. And he's able to see the one who is seated on the throne beyond that storm. The Lord God Almighty, the writer on the storm is even more awful and beautiful than anyone ever imagined. And when I say the word awful, I mean it in the old English sense. I don't mean awful like yucky and terrible. I mean awful in the sense of filled with awe. John is awestruck by what he sees because this is an awesome vision that he never dreamed of, never imagined. And as he draws near to this throne, beyond the clouds, beyond the storm, he sees, imagine this, raging Storm, And then beneath the storm, he sees a crystal sea. Not a sea that is disturbed and churned and white capped underneath the storm, but a storm, a sea that is crystal clear, smooth, calm. It's at peace. To the ancient world, this would have meant that God truly is sovereign because in their minds, The sea was the place of chaos and monsters and the abyss and darkness. And it was the place of evil. And yet it's all under God's sovereign care and control. But what is it to us? What is this crystal sea? This crystal sea to us is not the place of evil and chaos. To us, it is a vision of the baptismal font. The true and better brass Sea that stood in Solomon's temple is this crystal sea that stands before the throne of God. Those who draw near to worship God must have their hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. They must also have their bodies washed with pure water. And only those who have been consecrated inside and out by the blood and water of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit may draw near to God in worship. That is one reason Christ has sent us to make disciples of the nations by 
baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and by teaching them to obey His commandments. That is one reason why Christ calls us to administer baptism to you and your children. So that we may draw near together, family by family, into the presence of God for worship. Because worship is life. Everything else is just details. Also around this throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes front and behind. These are strange creatures. Try to sketch them out and see what you come up with. These heavenly angelic creatures resemble earthly animals. What does it mean? It means they're representing all of God's creatures. Representing all of God's creatures gathered around the throne of God to worship Him. No longer at odds with each other. No longer trying to slay and slaughter one another. No longer fighting with another, one another, but at peace. And together they are singing the same song over and over again. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This is the song they sing without ceasing. The hymn of praise they offer without fail. We echoed that hymn a few moments ago in two languages, not, no less. Well done. But we echoed that hymn because we are trying to join our voices to the voices of those who know God best and see Him most clearly. And what do they say? They say He is holy, holy, holy. He is distinct. He is pure. He is righteous. There's no flaw in Him. There's no failing in Him. We grow tired and bored of singing the same songs over and over again. Believe me, I know. I hear people say, we sing that song a lot, don't we? And as we're putting the worship order together, it's like, eh, we just sang that like three weeks ago. Should we do it again? Should we not do it again? We, we are so conscientious of those things because we worry about what each other thinks. But these living creatures don't care what I think or you think or anyone else thinks. They sing the same song every day, every night, moment by moment, and they never stop singing it. You know why? Because they are singing for an audience of one. And their worship is contagious. It spills over to the other creatures, to the other people who are gathered around this throne. Whenever the living creatures, verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, guess what happens? Other people join in. The 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and they worship Him who lives forever and ever. So again, you have a picture here of the ideal presbytery meeting. All the presbyters who are ruling, all the elders who are ruling, gather before the Lord God Almighty for what purpose and for what end? To lead the people of God in the Lord's service. How? How do they do this? They respond to God's majestic glory and to the praise of His glorious grace by falling down on their faces, by coming off of their thrones. And as they come off of their thrones, they are casting their crowns before the Lord God Almighty in reverence and awe, in humility. It's a declaration that we are not worthy. God alone is worthy. We are not rulers and kings. God alone is the ruler and king. 
And so they cast their crowns. They give their, or, their honor and their glory to God. They cast it before the throne of God. And they say, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and they were created. What are these elders doing? They are declaring the praises of God, not their own praises. They are confessing the faith once for all delivered to the saints, not their own opinions or doubts. Michael Gorman says the worship of God is the heartbeat of the cosmos. Even when we humans on earth do not see it, participate in it or value it. Only God is worthy to receive what others may want or demand. Our total devotion, our praise, our crowns. The worship of God is the heartbeat of the cosmos. Now you may or may not have noticed this. But what you see in Revelation 4, and then we'll notice more of this in Revelation 5. What you see is that this is a vision of covenant renewal worship service. There is a call to worship. Come up here and see. There is consecration by the word of God and by sacrament. There is communion of the saints, a gathering of God's servants around his throne in his presence. There is a confession of sin and of faith. We are unworthy. God alone is worthy. God is the father, the almighty maker of heaven and earth. Now, if that vision of covenant renewal worship resembles the worship order in your hand or in your lap, it is because our worship is an attempt to reflect what is happening in the universe next door. And that's why we pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. One Christian author says... Worship is at once about who we are. About who or what our God is. And about how we choose to live at this moment. And for as long as the world endures, everybody inhabiting it is bowing down and serving something or someone. An artifact, a person, an institution, an idea, a spirit or God through Jesus Christ. Worship has to do with much more than just going to church. Worship is about what shapes you and what sustains you in the daily grind of life. It is this vision of covenant new renewal worship that we are granted in Revelation 4 that begins to reshape us, not only for this world, but for the world to come. We learn in this vision that worship is life and that everything else is just details. John went through the open door and that's what he saw. But that's not all he saw. And so next week we will gather again on the Lord's Day in the Spirit and we will go back through that door, back to that throne room and gather with 
the saints through all the ages, all of God's people in spirit. And we will worship and praise God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will see a bit more of this magnificent vision. A vision of ultimate reality that centers us on the true and living God.